welcome to another Scottish Green podcast. I'm Lorna Slater, one of the Scottish Green Party co-leaders. And I'm Andy White. My name is P. Lothian. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. What a week it has been in the Scottish Parliament. There's been emotional highs. There's been terrible emotional lows. It's been a real roller coaster. Can you tell me a bit more about what went on in the Parliament this week? Well, most parliamentary business is focusing on responding to the COVID-19 crisis, as one can imagine. We're doing a little bit of other stuff, but it's mainly uh, COVID-19. And of course, Parliament, like many other places of work, uh, has severe restrictions as to how many people can be there, etc. So we're only meeting for uh, two days. Um, actually, it was three days uh, last week. Um, and we were focusing last week on the uh, a new coronavirus bill. These are uh, an emergency piece of legislation. We did one in the 1st of April, uh, and we did another one this week. Uh, and the purpose of these bills is mainly to, uh, you know, adjust the timescales in the justice system, uh, about how many days you has, has to elapse before you can be put on trial, or deadlines for public authorities to do certain things, or obligations on planning authorities to display planning applications in public places, all that kind of stuff, which you can't do in a crisis. Um, so it was to adjust all that so that no public authority faces any legal action for failing to do their statutory duties, as well as making some uh, amendments to the way the health service runs to, to actually practically manage the crisis. And back on the 1st of April, we made some adjustments to Scotland's tenancy laws to extend the period of notice you had to give if you wanted to get uh, a tenant uh, out of your property. And that was designed to give tenants a bit more security during the pandemic. And this week I attempted to do some more on that front and it got very tetchy. Um, and we had a big bust up um, and it was um, all very interesting. <laughs> so what what is the status of tenancies in Scotland then, particularly with the coronavirus crisis? But I guess generally too, there's a bit of history here, isn't there? Yes, indeed. In fact, Scotland's been a country that's been uh, the, in which the majority of people have lived in uh, rented accommodation up until the 1970s. It was it was over 50 percent. I think it might have been as high as 60 percent at some time. And uh, it was famously said by conservative politicians then that, you know, we had a higher proportion of public housing than uh, many Eastern European countries. Now, of course, they said that as a in a disparaging sense. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having 60 percent public housing. Um, but by comparing it with Eastern Europe, the idea was that uh, we were backward because Eastern Europe was an authoritarian uh, statist society. When in fact, public housing in Scotland and in Britain as a whole had emerged post-war. And it was, uh, in fact, it was the, the biggest building programme of public housing took place under a Conservative Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan. Uh, and it was designed to build, to, to bring everybody's housing standards up to a uh, uh, you know, a decent minimum. There had been a lot of slums and after the war it was obviously felt unacceptable for people to uh, live in substandard housing. We we created the National Health Service. We did a lot of things for the common good, as it were, and one of those things was building public housing. Now, when the Conservatives came to power in 1979, they um, began to sweep away all that. They wanted to make a uh, uh, property-owning democracy uh, some of that was around politics, that people who owned their own home would be more likely to vote Conservative. Uh, and Mrs Thatcher started a programme of selling off council houses. Um, it was very popular because the people who lived in council houses got to buy them at a discount. 
Um, but of course, we lost a lot of public housing uh, that otherwise would have housed people at modest rents. And what that meant was we then entered a period of a couple of decades when housing really went backwards. If you couldn't afford to buy, and that was the case for many, many people, you were basically forced into the private rented sector, if you could. There were housing associations emerged, um, but, you know, they could only build a limited number of, of houses. Councils stopped building houses because if they built one, they, you know, the, the tenant could then just buy it. So why why waste that money? And so over the 20 years of devolution, of course, housing's been a, a, a major issue. But over the last five, ten years in particular, particularly since the financial crash, young people in, in particular whose, whose wages have, have flatlined um, have struggled in terms of housing. There's not been enough social, affordable public housing, and they've been forced into the private rented sector, which has trebled over the 20 years of devolution. So in 1999, 5% of the population lived in the private sector, and now it's 15%. And the important thing about them is that most of them are not living in that sector through choice. You know, if they if they had a real choice, they would probably prefer a council house or a socially rented house because they're pretty good quality uh, and they're, they're very affordable. So we've got a situation now where the situation facing private tenants is better than it was, um, but still relatively insecure. And your landlord can issue a notice to quit on uh, about 16 different grounds, including that they wish to sell the property, or they wish to live in it themselves, or that you've built up rent arrears, or they wish to convert it to an Airbnb, etc. And that still means that tenants are potentially never more than you know a month or two away from eviction. So the move by the government to extend that notice period and give tenants um, three or six months uh, was welcome. But we argued in the first coronavirus bill that you shouldn't be allowed to issue any notices to quit at all during the crisis, because even if it were not to take effect for three or six months, uh, it still introduced a lot of insecurity in your life. And of course, none of us know when this is going to be over. And I suppose the important point about this crisis and rented housing is that People are have lost their jobs, people have uh, lost incomes, either wholly or in part, and therefore financial uh, insecurity has grown. And the last thing you want when you're financially insecure is to be worried about whether you're going to lose the roof over your head. So, yeah, the, this week was really about trying to strengthen those protection, protections and, um, yeah, an important policy area. So it seems to me, though, that the current law prioritizes the convenience of landlords. They can they go, oh, I want to sell the flat. That's you. You're out over people having a home. I mean, if you've lived in a, a, a particular rented flat for decades or you know years, decades, this is actually your home. This is the roof over your head. Making someone homeless is a very serious thing to do for something as frivolous as, oh, I just want to sell the flat. I know in Europe it's standard to sell a flat with the tenant in it. They don't care who the landlord is. That's right, and that that um, touches on the important uh, fact that um, housing is a human right, um, the right to a home, um, and that's not surprising actually, because the basic things we need as human beings, as as, as mammals, uh, is we need shelter, uh, we need warmth, uh, we need food and water. I mean, those are the basics for survival, uh, if you like. Um, I mean, on top of that, we we have uh, um, you know, recreation and health services and 
all that kind of stuff. But those are the basics. And so really the first duty of any government, I think, is to make sure that um, there is housing, heating, food uh, on the table. And that in a, in, a, in a market democracy obviously depends on sustaining people's income, but it also depends on having a framework of property law in place that protects the interests of people for whom the property is their home. And you're right that the, you know, any tenant, there are two interests in it. There's the tenant and there's the landlord. And what's often forgotten in these discussions is that for the tenant, as you say, that's their home, you know. For the landlord, it is a property. And in the vast majority of cases, the landlord already has a home. You know, they're living in their own home and they own another property. So whilst obviously in society we shouldn't have laws that allow people to take property off each other willy-nilly, if you take the choice, the act of choice, to let your property to somebody to make it their home, you should be relinquishing a substantial amount of control over that property. And if you want the the, the freedom to, to move back into it or sell it and get the tenant out, uh, you know, then don't don't get involved in renting, you know, do something else, I don't know, buy an industrial estate or something. So it's a very, very important point, And it's why um, protecting the rights of tenants is so important, because it's, it's upholding human right. Um, and it's not, it shouldn't be hard. You mentioned other European countries, uh, you know, countries like Denmark and Germany and Italy and France and places have much greater security uh, and typically in many of these countries as well, I mean, if the landlord does choose to sell, uh, you stay put. What they're doing is they're selling a tenanted property. And there's many people who'd like to buy a tenanted property. You get a 1% or 2% return on, on the capital. I mean, it's good for pension funds, for example. It's a steady, steady, steady supply. Um, and the only reasons that tenants can be evicted are, you know, if they commit criminal damage, if they firebomb the place, or if they persistently and don't pay their rent if they just refuse to pay any rent. So in those extreme circumstances, uh, there are processes you can get tenants out. But otherwise, every European country recognises to a much, much greater degree than we do in the UK that once a place is someone's home, they deserve maximum protection. So you've been helping one of your constituents, I think, was it Colin? I can't remember his surname with an eviction on on this sort of in this sort of situation where it was his home for 27 years and now they're they've evicted him he's out well that's true yes so earlier well late on 2019 i was contacted by colin brown who's a 67 year old man lives on his own uh, in leith has been living in his flat for 27 years uh, and uh, the flat is owned by a, a property company called Express Investments Limited, who are basically run by um, uh, some lawyers in Edinburgh, uh, and they have quite a lot of investors. And they were established, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, at their peak, I think they had uh, tens, maybe 100 properties or so, uh, which they let out, uh, and it provided them with a, a financial return. Uh, and they've slowly scaled back, and uh, last year they decided they wanted to get rid of all their properties, uh, wind up the, their company uh, and distribute the, the assets of the company to the to the shareholders, which is perfectly legitimate. Uh, they had, I think, 27 flats across Edinburgh. Um, some of them, uh, the tenants were on um, uh, regulated assured tenancies, which meant they couldn't be kicked out. So uh, those properties were basically sold to, 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 to housing associations and the tenants stayed put. 
but for the rest they evicted them and Colin was the last man standing as it were uh, he was the only one standing between um, uh, the company uh, and uh, uh, the shareholders getting their return and I helped Colin we were in the tribunal he ultimately lost the case it has to be kicked out but the um, the consequence of that is I'm in fact meeting a QC uh, an advocate next week because we are pursuing a human rights challenge to the Housing Act 1988 because what struck me was the grounds on which he was being evicted were just that his six-month tenancy was up, you know, the rolling contract. Um, and the law, the 1988 law, makes no distinction between different classes of people. So a young worker in their 20s, maybe quite happy to be kicked, well, not happy to be kicked out, but not particularly perturbed, maybe, um, as compared with, a, you know, a single parent with a young family with kids at school, and a precarious job, or uh, an older person uh, like 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 Colin, it seems to me that the law should be a little bit more proportionate to take into account uh, the lived reality of the tenant. And if they're in some ways vulnerable, or they have children at school, and you're going to disrupt those lives, or if they're an older person, it seems to me the law should 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 give them greater protection. And it doesn't. It just treats everybody the same. So I think there's a there's a, a case on proportionality grounds uh, for challenges challenging this under 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 human rights so yes the, the fight goes on and, and the really important thing here is that no um there's been no major improvements in tenants rights without a struggle because in almost every country the landed interest is far far more powerful and in britain of course the landed interest has literally made the laws it's been male property owners who've made the vast bulk of Britain's laws, because they were the only people who made laws until uh, some women, the, most women, got the vote in the 1920s. Uh, but we still very much have a culture that's very deferential to propertied interests, and their interests come first, and tenants are almost an inconvenience. So no tenants' rights movement, no greater protections has come without a struggle, without rent strikes, without campaigning, without solidarity. And that's why um, what I was trying to do this week in Parliament was defeated, but nevertheless... Uh, Ultimately, I think we will prevail if tenants get organised. And a, and a good example of that are countries like Sweden, where they have a tenants union. They have over 500,000 members, half a million members, and they collectively bargain uh, with all the landlords. There's maybe 40,000 landlords, including municipalities and, and private landlords. They collectively bargain right across Sweden. They're in a powerful position. Um, and Sweden, as a consequence, has got a reasonably good housing system without that political power of tenants it's unlikely that there's going to be significant uh legal reform and so tell us about the amendment that you brought to the scottish parliament this week because you said there was a there was a bit of a row in parliament so what, what was it you were proposing so yes as i as i mentioned earlier you know prior to the crisis uh, tenants could be evicted um sometimes with no reason if they were on an older tenancy or if they were on a newer tenancy there had to be grounds for eviction which could include the landlord wanted to sell or turn it into a short term let or, or 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 whatever now during a crisis when we're being told to stay at home uh, it is immoral uh, to expect anyone to be evicted from that home so what we did in the 1st of April was we said, OK, if there are any eviction notices served, uh, the length of period over which you shall be required to leave shall be extended to six months. Uh, and that gave obviously some security. But I argued then, 
as I think I mentioned earlier, that we wanted to ban all evictions, not allow them even to be initiated during that period. We lost then. So when the second bill came along, I thought, well, what further can we do? Uh, there, also, there was another issue, of course, is that notices to quit that had been issued and granted by the courts or the tribunal before the crisis period, they're still going ahead. Uh, there's nothing we can do to stop that. Uh, and that remains a concern. But anyway, when this next bill came forward, I thought, well, tenants need more than just knowing that if they're evicted, uh, they'll be out in six months. By now, it's very clear. So we're eight weeks since this crisis started. It's very, very clear that tenants are facing financial hardship uh, and falling into rent arrears. So I began to look to the period beyond the emergency, when evictions will be allowed. Again, the courts will be open. And I felt it was very important to protect tenants from any financial distress that they had suffered during the crisis. So I proposed a number of amendments. One was a straightforward two-year rent freeze right across the board for everyone. That makes perfect uh, sense. The landlords have mortgage holidays. The interest rates are not going up. There is absolutely no reason, no excuse for raising rents at all. That's right. No, indeed. Um, another one was to set up a tenant hardship fund, and that was designed... Um, to support tenants who found themselves in financial difficulty and for who the and for whom the uh, social security system wasn't adequate, which it's not. I mean, that the, the housing benefit one gets is linked to what's called the local housing allowance, which is about half the level of private rents in Edinburgh. So you can't you can't pay your rent on the basis of benefits. Um, that that was rejected. Another one was to actually write off some rents, uh, and this obviously scared the bejesus out of uh, of some people. But it was framed such that it would only apply in unusual and extreme circumstances. So, so someone who had really suffered very, very badly, and it'd be up to ministers to set the rules, could have the rent written off. Uh, but that would be that would be just a, a relatively small number of people. The main focus was to look to the period after the crisis uh, is officially over, the emergency period ends, and make sure that if tenants had fallen into rent arrears, couldn't pay all the rent, that that would not be the grounds for eviction. Now, they would still owe that rent if they hadn't paid it. It would still be a debt, and that would still obviously be a worry, and I'd love to be able to do something about that. But the most important thing to do with tenants in those circumstances is to make sure that, as a consequence of that financial distress, they can't be evicted. And again, that's just about protecting their home. Now, of course, while that wouldn't apply and be of any relevance until maybe six months or 12 months down the road, it would send a very important signal to tenants that even if they were in distress, and even if they did get a, 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 a notice to quit, that notice to quit would not be valid on the grounds of any arrears they'd accrued during the, the period. And that would just give them extra security and confidence. And that was defeated uh, as well. So I think it was, it was a pretty grim day for Holyrood, as some commentators described it. And I was actually quite surprised. You know, beforehand, I'd, I'd lodged these amendments to the extent that people look at amendments uh, to bills. I, I publicised them to an extent. We put out a press release. People were aware of them, but there wasn't a great deal of um, discussion about them. I got a few emails saying, well, I hope these get through and all the rest of it. And there was a sense in which, well, yeah, these seem reasonable. There might need to be a little bit of negotiation or discussion. Uh, might not get them all through, but it's self-evident that we should do something. And then the aftermath of the vote was an outpouring of anger, um, disbelief uh, that the SNP and the Conservatives had um, 
voted together to defeat these. People could not understand. They couldn't understand why they were defeated. But moreover, they couldn't understand why Kevin Stewart, the housing minister, behaved in such an arrogant, dismissive, angry way during the debate. No need for that, you know. If government disagrees with an amendment from me or any other MSP, they can disagree with it, you know, reasonably and politely, firmly perhaps, maybe with passion. But um, Kevin Stewart launched a personal tirade against me and it was frankly a bit embarrassing. And that's what woke people up. They just did not understand that in the midst of a crisis, a parliament that most people cherish, you know, most people in Scotland fought for this parliament. The vast majority don't want to see it disappear. Uh, most people in Scotland, whether they're SNP voters or not, I think recognise that, you know, by and large, the SNP are a fairly progressive party, Labour, fairly progressive party, Liberal Democrats, ourselves, you know, we're trying to do the best thing. We're all broadly in the same political space and obviously the Conservatives are in another place, but that's fine. Uh, and they just couldn't believe we'd done nothing. We'd done absolutely nothing. And um, it came as a big shock. I mean, I wasn't so shocked because I'm used to uh, the attitude of this government and their behaviour and all the rest of it. But for people outside the Hollywood bubble who only pay attention to politics now and again, this was one of those moments. Um, and it's an important moment. It seems to moment. me there's a sort of... Yeah, there's a seems to me there's a big empathy gap there, but because making someone homeless has to be one of the cruelest things you can do to them. I sometimes myself try and imagine what that must be like to not have somewhere to keep my things, to rest, to get away from other people looking at me. You know, like there's nowhere to go that's yours, that's safe. How how much lack of empathy is there to what tenants' reality is if? We're saying to landlords, go ahead, you can evict them, no bother. If there's a pandemic on, they've lost, you know, through no fault of their own. They've been told to stay home. That means they've lost their job. Oh, and now they can lose their house too. That seems unbelievably cruel. It's an interesting question. And the straight answer is I don't know. I mean, I think there is an empathy gap. Um, but, um, and of course, there were figures published recently by someone who'd researched this. They'd looked up the... MSPs registers of interest and I think close to 30% of MSPs are landlords and in fact at stage two uh, of the bill when it's being debated in committee of a committee of nine people uh, Annabel Ewing of the SNP and the convener of the committee Murdo Fraser both declared their interests as landlords um, so two out of nine I mean that, that that's I think that's something like the percentage in parliament um, well more than that it's, it's just close to 30% uh, and Yes, I think there is an empathy gap. I think it's difficult for people who, by and large, have known uh, a decent degree of security throughout their lives. It's difficult to understand the trauma of being made homeless. And I think the fact that when you, when you talk about homelessness, um, and I was acutely aware and surprised, actually, at this when I got into Parliament, when you talk about homelessness, the number of people that still think that that's about people sleeping on the pavements. I mean, that's the most extreme end of homelessness. That is homelessness. But that's not the sum total of homelessness. <laughs> and uh, I think we do still suffer from the notion that a certain very regrettable belief that people who find themselves in difficulties like that, that somehow it's their own fault. I mean, I think that's a, it's an entirely unjustified view and belief, but I think it's there beneath the surface. And what it means is that when a debate comes forward like this about the balance of rights between landlords and tenants, 
many people are pre-programmed, I think, to to look to the interest of the landlord because that's what they're most familiar with, people in power, that is. So yes, there's an empathy gap. Uh, I mean, I don't think, to be fair, there's any MSP who is callous and cruel. I don't think anyone wants to actively kick people out of their homes. Uh, this is more about the legal framework in place to balance those two rights. And um, yeah, that balance certainly is not in the right place. So what what is the Scottish government saying then to tenants who find themselves in this situation? And as you pointed out, we may be looking at thousands. We don't we don't know what the fallout from the COVID crisis is going to be. We don't know how many redundancies. We don't know how many people will amass massive rent arrears. But it could be thousands of people looking at being evicted. What are they supposed to do? What does the government advise them? Well, I suppose that's a question for the government. And I was <laughs> we had uh, local government housing communities questions yesterday, and I was sorely tempted. Uh, to ask the minister what he had to say to Scotland's tenants this morning. <laughs> um, but, but I didn't, because I knew he had nothing to say and I didn't want to give him a platform. But the bottom line is the government's got nothing to say. New, you know, it, um, it, uh, to, to its credit, it provided those protections I talked about, extension of the notice period. Uh, but that's been it. It hasn't done anything else. In fact, all it's done between the first coronavirus bill and now is set up a fund to help landlords. That's all it's done. And if it had an ounce of political intelligence, it would know that in a second coronavirus bill, you had to do something for tenants. Something. It might not be a lot, right? But you had to do something to enable, if nothing else, and I'm talking from their perspective here, to enable you to be able to counter the Greens, for example, or Labour, who were coming forward with proposals. And, and they, could, they should have anticipated we'd, do, we'd be doing this and they should have had an answer themselves. And their answer might have been weaker um, and less robust than ours, but at least they'd have a story to tell that amongst all the people who'd been assisted by this bill, tenants were in there. And, we might dis and they would disagree with us as to the strength and, and depth of that conviction. But where they found themselves was they did nothing. Absolutely nothing. So tenants are expected to negotiate with their landlords based on their, la hopefully, I mean, how often do landlords say, yeah, no problem, I'll, I'll reduce your rent. That just, that seems like a fairy tale situation. I, in my experience, because I was a tenant for many, many years, I, you know, like many people of my generation, I was only ever to, able to buy a flat in my 30s, although I'm aware that I'm much better off than the younger people coming up behind me. So, you know, for decades I rented and I don't remember landlords being, I mean, I'd, they didn't want to spend even a tiny penny on repairs. They would evict you. You get the dreaded notice through the door and think, oh, I've got to pack everything up again. I've got to find somewhere. I've got to save a deposit again. All this sort of stuff. I can't imagine landlords going, yeah, no problem. I'll cut your rent. I can see you're in difficulty. That just doesn't seem like it's reality to me. Well, you do remind me that the government has said something to tenants. Uh, and that was in response to the letter I wrote to the minister about the landlord fund and said, well, where's the tenant fund? And the answer was, and it was repeated this week in Parliament, the answer was, go and claim universal credit and housing benefit. That is the answer. And as I said earlier... To cover not... Edinburgh rents. Well, exactly, Edinburgh rents are £800,000 for a one-bedroom flat. That's ridiculous. Well, indeed, indeed it is. So, uh, and the other message from the government is negotiate with your landlord. Uh, and, I mean, that... Uh, you know, regrettably, that's my message to constituents as well who come to me saying, look, I can't afford my rent. Um, and I have to say, well, sorry, I did try and, you know, do something about that, but we failed. So 
you do need to speak to your landlord. I mean, it's the same with any contractual relationship. If you fall into difficulty with payments, uh, repaying a debt to your bank or whatever, you know, talk to the bank, talk to your landlord. So, I mean, it is sound sense, right? And to be fair, many landlords have negotiated rent reductions during this crisis period. Um, I mean, I want to put that on record. It's important to acknowledge that. But that's of their own volition. They don't need to do that. They're choosing to do that. And to those who are doing that, I, I commend them. But, but, but this comes back to housing as your home and a human right. Your security in your home should not depend on the benevolence of a landlord. Benevolence is great. You know, maternalism, paternalism, I was trying to find a gender-neutral term for that word today, I don't know what it is, is all very well, right? But the job of parliaments and their elected representatives is to create a framework of law that ultimately provides a backstop. So if you have a benevolent landlord and you don't need to take advantage of legal protections because they've cut your rent in half, you know, fine, great. But if you don't, and even if one person doesn't, they still demand, they still deserve a safety net. And that's what we've... That's what we've not got. So you're, the word then is that we need to get a tenants union going in Scotland. We need to make sure that uh, the tenants are not negotiating as individuals, that they can do some collective negotiation. Well, we do have a, an embryonic tenants union called Living Rent. Um, and, uh, you know, for the last 40 hours, I've just been saying to people, organise, join Living Rent. Um, I mean, collective bargaining would require some changes in the law as well. Um, Sweden's done that. Uh, I think that's a long way off. But organisation is the is the is the is the start because the only people who can genuinely and honestly represent the interests of tenants are organised tenants, and that's been the case throughout history. If you want to have your interest represented, it goes for landlords too. Organise organize organize and so yes that is the big challenge is to get the membership of uh, tenants unions uh, way way beyond the relatively modest membership they have just now I mean every tenant in Scotland should be a member of a tenants union um, and you know the more the merrier you know if we have five or ten tenants unions that's fine they could be geographical or whatever uh, they themselves could form a federation uh, and work together and that, that's that's going to be the main focus I think over the next six months is to get that organization so that the tenants voice can be heard loud and clear and they're not relying on um, you know a relatively small number of elected representatives who are fighting their corner against uh, the substantial political power wielded by by landed interests. So now the housing minister did, I understand, offer you an apology for his behaviour. Yes. Uh, as I say, the debate this week was intemperate. The minister's attitude uh, was um, regrettable. Uh, anyone watching the parliamentary uh, 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 channel would, would know that. In fact, it's all there. I, I posted a clip myself on, on Twitter a couple of days ago. Um, so, yes, he apologised in Parliament for his intemperate behaviour, which I accepted. He also apologised in writing, by letter, um, from a government point of view, for having not followed up my invitation to talk to him about my proposed amendments, which was what he was criticising me for. And I said, well, I'll publish these emails. I'll demonstrate that I, I made an approach. And we did have an exchange of emails, and I sent him my intentions. And uh, so he wrote a letter to apologise, because apparently he had instructed a phone call be made to me to set up some meeting, and that phone call had never happened. So, um, I, you know, I take him on his word that happened. But... I mean, that that in itself is a pretty weak excuse. I mean, ministers' private offices 
should be like the Rolls Royce of offices. And when they have contact from parliamentarians, they should be right on it. They should make sure that those meetings happen. They should uh, bend over backwards to make their ha- th- those things happen, if only to, uh, to avoid the um, rather regrettable circumstances that happened today when we had a big fight about whether, in fact, we'd been in touch with each other. Anyway, that apology's come. I accept it and we move on. But that doesn't get over the very deep and fundamental differences we still have about this. And if there's one you know, uh, good thing to come of this. It is I have been contacted by many, many people, many SNP members, in fact, who've resigned from the party, uh, who are saying, well done, thanks very much, can't believe this was lost, uh, but we mustn't allow this to happen again. So, in a sense, a loss, I hope, can be converted into a win uh, in the next few months. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Andy. Thank you very much indeed. Good to speak to you. And then I thought